I hope you'll take your Bibles and open to Mark chapter 9. I may have told you this before, I'm not sure, but I made a commitment long ago that I would start every sermon the same way. I would always start the sermon by saying, I hope you'll take your Bibles and open to, and then I'll tell you the passage. Maybe you've noticed this rhythm. Maybe it would help for you to know why I always start with that phrase. It's not only because I want to give you a chance to get to the right place, but it's a reminder to us that anything that's said, Lord willing, is not my opinion, but it's based on the Word of God. So the first thing we do is we open our Bibles together. I thought I'd share that with you this morning. Maybe you'll remember that in weeks to come as, I, as you hear me say, I hope you'll open your Bibles. May that be the, the trigger in our minds. We're going to God's Word. And who cares what Matthew has to say? I want to hear from God. I trust that's your heart's desire this morning. Many of you know that once a quarter, I take advantage of an opportunity to attend a lunch meeting with many other pastors here in Round Rock. And the number varies. I think there's usually about 40 of us that come together. And as you might imagine, when you get 40 pastors from a community of our size together, it means there's a lot of different traditions represented, a lot of different theological values, pastors from most of the major denominations, which means we represent a variety of practices, of preferences, of convictions. We're a diverse group, but we come together simply to encourage one another, to pray with one another, and as is possible to to think of ways that we can serve our community together. It's a unique gathering, and when I tell people about it, usually when I tell my friends who are pastors in other cities, I tell them about this group that comes together, I usually get met with one of two responses. Now, these are people who, who love the gospel, who love people. So I tell them about this gathering of diverse pastors who come together. And I usually get one or two responses. The first response is from those who get really excited about unity. So they'll say things like, we need more of that. For too long, we've been divided by denominations and traditions. So I like to hear that people are putting those things aside and linking arms. Response comes from those who are passionate about unity. Then I get a different response from my friends who are especially passionate about doctrine, who really care that we get things right. I'm more in that group. You know that, right? They have questions and good questions about the nature of this varied group. How can we actually cooperate if we come from so many different perspectives? It's a fair question. Are we sacrificing truth on the altar of unity? It's a concern about compromise. Two groups, two responses. Both of whom love us and love our church and love the gospel. And both of whom have passages that they go to that encourage their passion. In fact, they could both go to John 17, to the prayer of our Lord. You know that prayer just before he goes to the cross? So our friends who may be more towards the unity side, they may think of John 17 starting in verse 20. Jesus prays, I do not ask for these only, but for 
those who believe in me through their word, that they may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent us. It's an important text. Jesus, just before he goes to the cross, this was on his heart, that the people of God would be united. And it's not a superficial unity, do you see? He wants us as his church to be united the same way that he is with his Father. Wow. Jesus desired the unity of his children. I don't know of anyone who disagrees with that call, that prayer. But there are those who are passionate about doctrine, who are quick to point out that there's verses that come before that one. Do you remember the verses that come right before that? Starting in verse 15, Jesus prays, I do not ask that you would take them out of the world, but that you would keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world, and for their sake I consecrate myself, that they may also be sanctified in the truth. Here we see Jesus desire that we would know what is true. That we would love and live in the truth, be passionate about what is true. And the other verses, the verses about unity, actually flow out of that, right? That we would know what's true, and we would be united around what's true. So we see both of these things, the importance of unity and the importance of the truth. Both things that we should desire. But something worth recognizing is that both these things can suffer from overemphasis. Think of it as a road and there's ditches on both sides. We could fall into the ditch of overemphasizing unity, or we could fall into the ditch of overemphasizing truth. What does that mean? Well, think about the danger of overemphasizing unity. We could go so far as to desire coming together as the highest good. The extreme example would be the way many mainline denominations are functioning, where everyone's free to believe whatever they want because truth is personally defined. We would reject that. There are churches and entire denominations that do not call sin, sin. There are some who teach that we are all on our own path to heaven and we'll all end up in the same place in the end. We reject this, don't we, church? In these groups, the highest value is tolerance and acceptance, and the goal is unity at all costs. We must avoid that ditch. On the other side of the road, there can be an overemphasis on truth, and I couldn't find a good way to say that. I don't know that that's the best way to say it. The reality is, we could go so far in emphasizing doctrine that no one could ever pass our test of orthodoxy. We could elevate everything to the category of essential. We could think that our experience and understanding of the faith is the only true form that has ever been and that could ever, ever be. We could make our doctrine an idol, our theology something we worship, 
And let us be clear, there are things that we must not compromise on. There are things we must be firm on until the end. There are also many matters of practice that are preferential and some that we are convictionally believe are right. But there's a room for open-handedness, for charity. It's not to say that they're not important. There's room for grace. Hopefully you see the extremes. And I wonder if as you're listening to this, if you'd sense that you gravitate towards one camp or the other. Maybe you know I'm more of the unity person. Or maybe you'd say I'm more of a truth person. Let me be clear, the Bible calls for both. And so our job is to be discerning. God expects us to love the truth, to stand for the truth, to love unity, and to pursue unity. So this is an area we need to consider. What's it like to be people of truth and people of unity? Well, it's a long way of getting us to our text this morning. But as we come to our text, we see Jesus helping his disciples recognize the danger of exclusivity and the need for unity. I would enjoy preaching this text more if it was the other way around. We have those texts that tell us to separate. But we also have these texts that call for unity. And so we have to consider the words of Jesus honestly and consider what he's called us to. This passage is a warning to those who are zealous about truth and whose zeal may lead to unnecessary separation. I think it's a good warning for us. We are a church, you know this. Many of you are here for this reason. We love the scriptures. We love to know them well. And we spend a long time digging and choosing our words wisely in order to be precise, to understand God's word rightly. Which means we may need this text more than others. We can be tempted to strive to know what the Bible says and become very critical of anyone who separates from us at any point. It's a hard thing to consider, but this is why we walk through the Bible verse by verse. So we are encouraged to look at every passage, to hear all the words of Jesus, and to consider them carefully. We're in chapter 9. We're going to start at verse 38 this morning. Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 38. Hear the word of God. John said to Jesus, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God stands forever. May God give us wisdom and add his blessing to the reading and preaching of his word. 
know, right now as a church, we're reading through the New Testament together. So if you're tracking with us, you finished Matthew. And tomorrow we will pick up in Mark chapter 3. So we'll be rereading a lot of the stuff we've talked about together recently. As we read through our Bibles, most of your translations, they're laid out in paragraphs. They're laid out with section headings. And as we preach through the scriptures, we're often following these same paragraph breaks and these same headings. Which means we have to constantly fight the temptation to dismiss context. Right? We can be tempted to pick up verse 38 and start fresh. But we, we know the importance of context, right? For example, as we come to this passage, the context helps us see that at the heart of this passage, what's driving, what's going on in this text is the pride of the disciples. So if you're with us last week, you'll remember the, the conversation the disciples had. Remember they're walking down the road together. They're walking towards Capernaum. And they're having this conversation about who's the greatest. No doubt, they saw themselves collectively as a group, as set apart. What a unique situation, right? Men who have been called by Jesus himself, who had walked more closely with him than anyone, and they believed that he'd come to establish his kingdom, and we see this tendency in them to think themselves greater than anyone else who would claim to be a follower of Christ. And then even within the group, they're having this Debate. Who will be the greatest? It's a conversation that reveals their pride. Think about this. Shouldn't walking with Jesus day in and day out lead us to the ultimate humility? And yet here's these men who walk with Jesus day in and day out, and they are tempted in an unbelievable way towards pride. Let this be a lesson for us. Last week we heard that Jesus brings up their conversation and calls them to be people of humility. We see there in verse 35, if you look back, Jesus sat down and called the 12 and said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and a servant of all. It's a call to humility. It's a call to love others, to serve them. It's a teaching against pride, but what we see as we keep reading is that the context carries this theme of pride forward. Even though Jesus had just taught them about the need for humility, John speaks up and, some, and says something that reveals his ongoing struggle. Verse 38. John says to Jesus, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him. He was not following us. We have the situation. There's a debate about whether or not John's confessing we did something out of pride or whether he's trying to win back the favor of Christ after the rebuke. I think John speaks up assuming that he will be encouraged. You've done something good. We see the story, there's a man casting out demons in the name of Jesus and now we've, here's a side note. We've spent time in our study of Mark talking about demons. We won't spend too much time focusing on that particular part of this story. We've considered that when Christ was on earth, there was this unusual surge of the presence of demonic activity. And that's not to say that there's not still demonic activity today, but this was a unique time. We know it's unique because before the coming of Christ, we hear very little about these kinds of events. 
And after the ascension of Christ, we hear very little about these kinds of events. But during the time of Christ, it seems that Satan was on an all-out attack. And that there was a surge in demonic activity. And you'll remember that we've seen Jesus over and over, even in our study of the Gospel of Mark, dealing with this demonic surge. And he's also given his authority to his disciples. So go back to chapter 6. Remember, he sends them out on that first missions trip. And we're told that he gives them authority even to cast out demons. So here's the disciples. And maybe it's things like this that have elevated their temptation to pride. We've been set aside by Jesus. These are the kinds of things that we can do in his name. And now they see this man who perhaps they didn't know. For sure he wasn't part of the 12. They see him casting out demons and they decide that this is not right. This man certainly should not have the same authority that they do. He shouldn't be doing things in the name of Jesus. He's not part of their group. So they try to stop him. John tells Jesus, we don't have many details, but let's just consider the situation. The first thing I want you to consider, just based on what we know from the passage, and I think we see this more as we keep going, it seems that most likely this man was a genuine follower of Jesus. I think there's a couple of reasons I believe this. First is because of the response of Jesus that we'll see in just a moment. Second, I think this man is a genuine follower of Jesus because it seems that he is successfully casting out demons in Jesus' name. The passage doesn't tell us that he's trying to cast out demons. No, he's actually doing it. Which is different from the account in Acts 19. Maybe you remember this, Acts 19. There's Jewish exorcists who are attempting to cast out demons in the name of Jesus. But they're not successful. See, they were using the name of Jesus kind of as an incantation or a magic word. But they weren't followers of Christ and therefore their efforts fell flat. But this is different. This man's casting out demons in the name of Jesus successfully. So the question becomes, if this man is helping others, and if he's doing it in the name of Christ, why would the disciples want to stop him? We see the reason there at the end of the verse. We tried to stop him because he was not following us. I don't know what's causing that. We tried to stop him because he was not following us. And this is where we really see the heart of the problem is the heart of pride. John admits he's doing a good thing. He's doing it in the name of Jesus. But he's not part of us. There's a sense in which John's saying there are those who are in and there are those who are out and will be the judge of who is in and who is out. He wasn't part of their group and so they were intent on stopping him. And it reveals their exclusivity their heart of pride. And so we can stop and immediately start condemning the disciples. But first, let's try to get in their shoes. Men who have been personally called by Jesus, personally commissioned by Jesus. And how many times have they been in a decision where they've been put on the defensive, right? Having to defend themselves, having to, to in their eyes, stand up for Jesus. 
we shouldn't make excuses for them, but I think we can understand why it seemed appropriate to them that they should take action. That they should stop someone who is wielding authority that perhaps he didn't or shouldn't have. That's the first reason we should be slow to critique. But secondly, we should probably be slow and we should probably read this with trembling because we may have often been guilty ourselves. I wonder if you've ever found yourself skeptical of someone who was doing something for Christ and your skepticism wasn't born out of what they were doing, but it was born out of who they are. They're not part of our group. They're not part of our brand of Christianity. Now, if I say that and it makes you uncomfortable and you think I'm sounding a little too ecumenical this morning, I want to ask you to remember historically who we are, how careful we are, and how committed we are to the truth. Something we take seriously. And so the goal this morning, I don't think Jesus is telling us here to tear down every wall or to cross every line in the name of unity. But I do want us to consider that if we aren't careful, we could get to a place where we say, it doesn't matter if they're following Christ if they're not following us. It's a slippery slope, isn't it? It's where John and the rest of the disciples are. John says, we tried to stop him because he wasn't following us. The disciples are focused on their circle, who's in and who's out. And Jesus responds, not by patting them on the back, by teaching them. He says in verse 39, do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterwards to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. I said earlier, John may have accepted affirmation, expected affirmation. That's not what happens. Jesus says, don't stop him. And then he actually goes on to affirm that what the man is doing is good and right. Jesus acknowledges he's doing a mighty work. And he's doing it in my name. Once again, an affirmation that this is most likely a genuine believer. Doing these things with sincere faith. A miracle done in the name of Christ. Not flippantly or superstitiously, but sincerely. So Jesus says, don't stop him. And then he gives two reasons. One more of a principle and the other more of a proverb. First, no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. I think Jesus is trying to help them understand that someone who can do these things in his name is someone who thinks rightly about him. Someone who can do these things is not someone who's a threat to him or to the kingdom of God. I think it's worth connect, connecting this to the, what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. In verse 3 he says, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the spirit of God ever says that Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Not to say that no one can use those words, but anyone who truly says Jesus is Lord says it because the Spirit of God is in him. No one who has the Spirit of God in them can ever say Jesus is accursed. I think that's helpful in understanding what Jesus is saying here. 
One who does a mighty work in my name, one who shows that they have the Spirit of God, is not one who will soon speak evil of me. And then he goes on and says something that resembles a proverb. He says, for the one who is not against us is for us. Perhaps a statement that doesn't need much explanation. Not against us, for us. But if I can be honest, it's a statement that tempts me to say, but surely there are exceptions. I hear you, Jesus. But surely you have something to add to that. Isn't there a middle ground? Aren't there people who aren't really against us, but aren't actually for us? Surely there are those who need to be confronted because they're somewhere in the middle. I wish he said more here, but he doesn't. He tells his disciples, there may be those you perceive as outsiders, but if they're not against us, they're for us. And this is the part where I had listed some ways for us to clarify the words of Jesus. And there's room for discernment. But I decided maybe it's best that we just hear Jesus' words and hear what he's pushing us to consider. And maybe us as a congregation in particular needs to hear this. Also reminds me of the words of Paul in Philippians chapter 1, what Brian read for us earlier. Let me read it again. Philippians 1, starting in verse 12. Paul in prison says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. It has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel, the former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition. Not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and that I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. We see in Paul's case, seems that there are people who are personally at odds with Paul but they got the gospel right. They separated themselves from him and maybe he was inclined to separate from them. But they got the gospel right. So what does Paul say? I rejoice. Let's ask a couple of questions of ourselves. As we hear this testimony from Paul, as we hear this teaching from Jesus, how should we respond? Should our takeaway be that doctrine isn't important? By no means. Should our takeaway be that there's never any place for debate or disagreement? Surely not. There may be reasons to separate or to divide. But I think if we read the teaching of Jesus and read the teaching of Paul, we have to know that we must be careful. We can go to example after example, place after place, to be reminded that Jesus took truth seriously. And that Jesus knew there was a time to separate. 
read Galatians and Paul's harsh words towards those who may confuse the gospel. Paul knew what it meant to take a hard stand and to push back. Yet we see in the words of Jesus and in the example of Paul the importance of unity. I don't think many of us struggle with the idea of unity at all costs. I don't think that's your struggle. I know most of you well. That's not our struggle as a congregation. Our temptation is to go the other way. We can be tempted to hold so tightly to what we believe to be right that we struggle to think well about anyone who differs at any point. We can be tempted like the disciples to say, we should stop them because they're not following us. So it's important for us to hear when Jesus says that there are those who may not be part of our group but are doing good things in his name. We should praise God that the kingdom of God is bigger than Southern Hills. We should praise God that the kingdom of God is bigger and exists beyond Baptist churches. We should be thankful and rejoice that the kingdom of God is bigger and expands beyond Reformed churches. It's bigger and exists beyond the networks that we naturally gravitate towards. Let me know when I step on your toes. It's bigger and exists beyond your political system. It's bigger and exists beyond the American church. I could go on. The kingdom of God is bigger and exists beyond our experience of it. Go to other parts of the world and see if the church doesn't function a little bit different. But oh, the gospel is the same. And in that we rejoice. I keep feeling the need for clarification. <laughs> there are movements we should distance ourselves from. There are people who speak the name of Jesus but who are far from him. We must be discerning. We must guard at all costs the gospel of Jesus Christ. We must be clear that we hate sin and we will call sin, sin always. But we also must be careful and I think this text moves us towards not becoming proud. We may be tempted to think of ourselves more highly than we ought. We may be tempted to think that the kingdom of God is limited to our experience of it. We may be tempted to look down on brothers and sisters who are doing good work in the name of Jesus because their practices or preferences differ from ours. We must be careful. This is not a passage to tear down every wall. Distinctions are good and important. But we have to be careful before we say someone is outside because they're not exactly like us. We live in a time when there's a lot of different groups and movements, which means we must be discerning. Think about us as a church. To become a member of our church, we have a class and we talk about what we believe. We have Baptists in our name, because we believe it says something important about who we are and what we stand for. There is a place for distinctions. We have a statement of faith, and quite frankly, we think we're right. Or we wouldn't have it in our statement of faith. And if I was convinced we were wrong, I would lead us to try to 
be right by God's word. What we believe matters. And there may be times when we need to publicly address people and organizations that get the essentials of the faith wrong. But with that said, passages like this are called to live in humility, to be willing to listen and to learn and to walk in humility. We must be careful to recognize that we are called to advance the kingdom of God and not our own personal kingdom. Are there people we should separate from? I think so. But this passage serves to remind us that we serve Christ. And we must be aware that we may be tempted to be more exclusive than God has called us to be. We must be careful never to think ourselves in competition with other churches who are proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. I appreciated the words of R.C. Sproul. He said, we have to appreciate and embrace authentic ministry wherever we find it. We also must distance ourselves from heresy wherever we find it. Simply put, we need discernment. It's well said, and I think it helps us understand the words of Jesus. We've seen Jesus' response. He corrects his disciples. He gives them both a principle and a proverb. And then he ends in verse 41 with kind of an illustration, and I think an extended call to humility. For truly I say to you, whoever gives a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ, will by no means lose his reward. Think again of the disciples' struggle with pride, their debate about who was the greatest. It's evident they're tempted to create this hierarchy. After warning them against being too exclusive, Jesus goes on to help them recognize the breadth of ways in which people do the work of God. Jesus, I think, anticipates that the disciples could create a test. Okay, if they can cast out demons in Jesus' name, okay. Or maybe if they can heal in Jesus' name, then okay. But Jesus cuts off any temptation to segregate based on the size of someone's work. There will be some who show their faith in great acts. Others will show their faith in simple ways, like giving a cup of water to another brother or sister in need. Now, Be careful because we could read this verse wrong. We could read this to say that we earn our standing with God based on works. And if we do good works in his name, we will not lose our reward. I think it's a misreading of this text. I think this text is calling us to recognize that the size of the work in Christ's name is not what makes it true but that even something simply as giving a cup of water in Jesus' name may be a reflection of genuine faith. So be careful. Whether it's casting out a demon or giving a cold glass of water to someone in need, this is a reminder that gets to the heart of what it means to follow Christ. We must be people of humility. And let me end maybe concluding both last week's message and this message together. As followers of Jesus, we must be people of humility. Isn't this the way we come to be followers of Christ in the first place? By recognizing our sin and humbling ourselves, admitting that we cannot save ourselves, but we need Jesus and his sacrifice on our behalf. And if you're here and you are not a follower of Christ, this is the only way to be right with God. To humble yourself before him. 
to confess that you're a sinner and that you need him and the work that he's done on your behalf. We enter faith through humility. And after we come to Christ, this should not change. We are still sinners in need of him. And that realization should remind us that as we interact with others inside and outside of the church, we should remember that we are who we are by his grace. So be humble. And if you've been given the gift of knowledge and you understand the scriptures well, that's by God's grace. So be humble. And if you interact with another brother or sister who's not as mature in the Lord, who doesn't understand the scriptures the way you do, walk in love and humility. I trust that the scriptures we've considered the last two weeks serve as a protection and as a guard for our souls and for our church. We could be tempted to pride, which would lead to all kinds of error. So let's take this reminder from Jesus. Live and interact with others in humility and unity. Don't compromise the truth, but always be motivated by love. I'm going to end with the words of Paul from Ephesians chapter 4 as we close. Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another, putting up with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called, and one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. May God help us as we seek through wisdom to live out his word.